Welcome back to an extra special episode of Learning As I Go. Big shout out to British Triathlon and to everybody who signed up to do the race with me in July on the 29th. It's going to be a movie and I've been training hard. I'm going to fill you in with everything I've learned so far later on in the episode. But today, I welcome to the studio my first ever guest, the original guest of this podcast, Gareth Palmer, my therapist. And this guy is a genius. And I've seen him now for over eight years and he's helped me get to where I am today. You will get so much out of this podcast, so many different life lessons, so many new perspectives. It's going to be very, very special. So make sure you sit back, listen, relax, and tune in to another life lesson with Learning As I Go. We've got the Messiah in the building, <laughs> Gareth Palmer, my very own therapist, who I've seen for, it's got to be about eight years now, yeah. maybe longer. Yeah, I think it's about eight years, yeah. And you were the first guest ever on my podcast, Learning As I Go, and we did it via Zoom, and look at us now in this beautiful studio at Boodles. It is lovely. And it's all thanks to you for giving me that massive head start. Still to this day, I get so many people who message me saying you got so much out of that conversation. And even watching it back, Gareth, you just talk so much sense. And I take it for granted sometimes, the fact that I get to sit down with you um, around once a month now. But obviously at one point, it was once a week. It was, yeah. And you've been a massive part of my transition and transformation in life. Just put into perspective what I was like when I first came to see you and the person that I am now. Am I much different? <laughs> <laughs> you still retain the sparkle. Yeah. But when you first came to see me, you were restless, unsettled, and the word I use a lot in therapy, ungrounded. Mm. So, you know, your phrase for this was going around like a balloon. A phrase I'd never heard before until you introduced it to me. But now I get it. So someone who is ungrounded is unable to find any stability in themselves. Mm. And there are all sorts of interesting reasons for this. But that's the core work of therapy is to get someone grounded. So they get into a position where they understand what's going on with them through body, others, thinking and emotion. You know, as you candid enough to admit, you were in a very frantic place when we first met, which is why it was a good thing to meet once a week. And it needed a bit of coaxing on my part as well to get you there. Yeah, of course, at first, yeah. for anyone who didn't, who's not done therapy before, you kind of think, what's this all about? It's kind of got a little bit of stigma around it. I was sort of going in there to tick a box. I wasn't actually necessarily doing it for me. I was doing it for the people around me. Yeah. And it wasn't until like the second time round when I came yeah. to see you, I was actually doing it for me rather than other people. And that's when I really like kind of threw myself into it because I wanted to make some changes. And for me, yeah, I didn't really know who I was and I'm still figuring it out to this day. But I was very much wrapped up in this identity of this Scotty special being this ultimate party boy that everybody thought I was. Yeah. When away from that person, I actually didn't know who I was. So I, I think what you were portraying was, in a, was an excellent version of what we call the expected self. Uh, you're brought up to behave in a certain way, a kind of show business world that you grew up in. Other people expect you to be like that. So all you had to be was to keep rolling out that model of you. You kept being this expected self, but there's a huge amount of pressure in relentlessly performing that expected self. So what we're trying to do is rebalance you and get you to think about the inner life and get you to reflect. And you make a really good point here is because most people are not quite sure who they are because they've deeply, heavily invested this expected self. 
They think they have to be like this type of person because their families depend on it, other people depend on it, colleagues, others. So it's a big step to go, actually, is this all I am? Is all I am the expected self? Isn't it possible to step back from that and to reflect on how I've got to this place? Mm. So when we're aligned, and this is where you are at the moment, when we're aligned, body, others, thinking, emotion, internally and externally, are moving in the same direction. It feels great. Everything is working in the way it should, and it feels really, really comfortable. But for most people in life, because most people don't do therapy, right? Mm. Most people in life, when they reach an obstacle or hit rather an obstacle they go out of alignment like that right? and then they have a choice what do i have to do to get back into alignment to continue being this expected self or can i learn something from this obstacle can i learn something about myself mm -hmm. so when it comes to you know party boys having a great time eventually they'll hit an obstacle they'll go wait a minute i'm out of alignment what is the cost to me of getting back into alignment and what am i ignoring about myself that's where we go. We get into that internal discussion about what's happening with you, body, others, thinking, and emotion. What's different from what's happening in the expected self? What did you do to come to identify with that expected self? So for me, I remember in high school, I was like the golden child in my family. I was very academic, intelligent, got all straight A's and A stars. And I always thought I was going to be a lawyer or a barrister and I went to university and I got to university and I quickly kind of fell out of love with that purely because I got no validation at university. You kind of left your own devices. And then I fell into this like socialite scene in Manchester. Yeah. And I started throwing these parties and I was good at it. I was naturally good at it. Mm. And then in order to become the best at that, it involved a lot of drinking and partying and the lifestyle kind of escalated out of control. Because for me, anything I do, I want to be the best at, right? So becoming this party boy became my identity. But it got to the point where I would wake up after a night out. I would have pissed off so many different people. I would have self-sabotaged myself into oblivion. And I'd sometimes wake up in tears thinking, why does everybody think that's me? When in actual fact, I don't even think that's me. But I couldn't break away from it because yeah. I felt trapped in this never-ending circle. This is exactly, this is the wheel of the expected self. You keep traveling in a certain direction. And most people think you are like that because of the huge energy you put into being that. All the energy that went into entertaining other people, making sure they were okay, arranging parties, making everybody happy, that's enormously draining. Because what you do then is you focus on what it is other people want. And that will empty you out. Mm -hmm. And because of that emptying out, we have to think about, well, how do we correct that? How do we get you into a balance in which you feel comfortable with yourself instead of completely surrendering yourself to the needs of others? They thought you were like that because of the energy you put into it. If you hadn't put that energy into it, your expected self would have been rather different. Mm. Is that why it comes back to the power of saying no? And we hear about this a lot in the kind of the self-development space, having the kind of autonomy to say no to the things that no longer serve you and the people that no longer kind of bring out the best in you. Through doing that, you can be hit quite immediately with some resistance, right? That's really, yes, absolutely and, right. And that's what happened yeah. to me when I tried to make my lifestyle change. Yeah. First, people were like, what's up with you? Have you got a problem? Or like some of my mates didn't really want to hang around with me anymore because yeah. I was boring or whatever. But okay, that's the immediate kind of hit, which is a little bit tough to swallow. But as soon as you go through that kind of hardship and that transition over time, you start to attract the right people into your life yeah. and you start to find out who you are. And, and listen, it's difficult because I'm a people pleaser. I like to keep everybody happy even now to this day. Yeah. So... For anybody who does find validation from other people, for them to try and prioritize themselves 
and be, almost be a bit selfish. Like even sometimes if I say no to going to that person's party or to that event, I feel like I'm letting people down. Yeah. But in actual fact, looking after me should really be a priority, but it's hard but it, to say that. It is really difficult to do that because we put huge investments in this expected self. Mm. It's a co-creation. You've been developing that since you were a kid and other people create it. So it's a thing that exists partly independently of you. So what's been remarkable about your journey is you've made massive efforts to change the expected self. And here is a key word, change. Because in therapy, there are two stages. The first stage is investigation. The master word of all therapy, I think, should be what happened to you? Not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you? And when we fully understand what happened to you, then we're in a position to go, should we change then? What do we have to do to change? Now, you're right. Most people follow or engage with the expected self. You're right. But if you want to change, change is difficult for those people because if you change, it lets them know, wait a minute, I'm not sure about myself. If you change, what about me? Maybe I should change. And that becomes very uncomfortable. Yes, yeah. very uncomfortable for people. So they back away from that, say, oh, you're boring. You don't drink 12 pints a night and sip Coke. Is this the wrong with you? What's wrong with you? So they would rather not change because change is massive for people. Understanding is great. That's one stage. And people could even identify with what they think they are. But change is significant. Change requires a real effort to go, right, I want to be something else. I want to do something else. And that's what you've done. You've changed this expected self. But God, it's effort. It's work. Because oh, it the is. people around you, and not, not everyone around you, is going to entertain that because they're scared. But how funny is it, Gareth, that when I came to see you, I was like, oh, um, Gareth, I can't not be the Scottish special. That's who everybody wants me to be. Yeah. And now there's a new conversation where I'm coming into you going, like when I first went sober for the first time round, and being, I call it like the food for thought, Scott, the wellness, Scott. Yeah. It's almost sometimes hard being that perfect kind of wellness guy sometimes. It's almost like I've got the totally different problem now. Yeah. Like where, listen, it's not like I create a persona, but it's almost like I want to be a positive inspiration to people. And on social media, especially, I try to share the lows, but it's predominantly the highs and the motivation side. Yeah. But sometimes living up to that all the time is difficult. And I think I'm in a bit of a unique position where Scott Thomas, the personal brand, needs to somehow be separated from Scott Thomas at home. And you always ask me, Gareth, and this is a really difficult question for me to answer. What do you actually do that's just for you? This is, this is a really important point. Because when we go out of alignment, we have a choice to fight our way back into alignment or to go, wait a minute, I could stop. I could think about what do I want to do for myself in terms of an inner life? Mm. And sometimes it takes a great, if you're in demand and you are in demand, it takes a great deal of time, courage and effort to go, wait a minute, let me do, and the phrase I've used with you before is, something that doesn't matter. Mm. That's the difficulty for a lot of people today. They think that everything I do matters in some way. And that's a huge pressure. And a very, very new thing for our species. We have not lived like that before. So what is enduring, what has been around a long time, is the importance of looking into what's the inner life? What are you doing for you in terms of how are you looking after your body, irrespective of what other people think? What's your relationship to others that doesn't depend upon their reception? What's the relationship to your thinking? Do you spend time getting a distance on your thoughts. I would have said this to you before, but when I ask people, what's your relationship to your thinking? That throws them. What do you mean, Mara? I am my thinking. Well, you're not. If we could talk about your thinking, clearly you're not your thinking. And then finally, the last stage of all therapy, emotions. What's your relationship to your emotions? I don't want to go on about this, but what I say, and it's a core belief, 
is that if your emotional life is dependent upon others, they have power. They have power. They can decide what to do with you. And they won't probably use it in that malicious fashion. But this is a central point. Your emotional life can't be dependent upon other people. Otherwise, they have too much power. So the point about the inner life is to go, okay, what's going on with my emotions? And as you'll know, we could work through Buddhist exercises on this to get you to a place where you can be with the emotions. And the problem with men, so many men so often, is that they're not with their emotions. They're reacting from them. It's interesting you say that because I've got some friends, right? And they actually tend to be my happiest friends. The ones who actually don't, I mean, people say they don't care what other people think. But I mean, I've got some pals who just genuinely go, I don't care what they think. And I look at them, I'm like, they're almost like a superhero because they've got this sense of confidence. Like, And some people might call them selfish or self-indulged because they're willing to let other people down for their own happiness. But I actually respect the fact that literally you can see they genuinely don't care what other people think. As long as they're confident what they're doing, yeah. they're not being a bad person by their own terms. Whereas, like you said, in this world that we live in, everybody's got an opinion. And almost like to be successful as well, especially in my industry, you need to be liked, you need to be loved. So it's hard to sometimes find that balance between I think you're not, right. Not caring what other people think, but then well, also looking after you. So if anyone comes to see me and says, I don't care what other people think, I think, well, this you're an interesting advance in our species, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> because for the most part, we've been, Homo sapiens have been tribal. And it's really, really important to know how the tribe works. And tribes are a very elementary species. You are in the tribe and alive or outside the tribe and dead. So this is quite straightforward. Someone who says to me, I don't care what other people ah, okay. think, I'm going to investigate that. So is that everyone or is that some people? Or what is behind the strength of that belief? It's a strong belief that's always worth talking and investigating. Where did that come from? Because the acts and the thoughts they're engaged in are rooted in very, very deep beliefs about themselves. It's worth uprooting those beliefs and having to think about them. Mm. Second point is, of course, you're in a business, show business, essentially, in which it's important to be liked by other people. No one could argue with that. It's fundamental. You could argue it's core to the job. But what's equally important for me is to be able to go, all right, but let's have some space away from that where your phone is put down, where you're not engaged with anything else, and you potter. You do things that don't matter. I have the self-awareness now, mainly because of our conversations, to go that it's important to do stuff that doesn't matter. But why is it important, Gareth? What, what, where does the kind of growth come from in those moments? Okay, this is a really good question. So the expected self, as I say, is a co-creation. You've worked on it since you were a little boy. All of us work on it since we are a little boy because we have to be well-behaved. We have to turn up for school. We have to pass our exams, to go to college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a co-creation because they're making it and you're making it. Now, here's the fact. Your expected self is going to change. Let's be frank. It has your expected self has already been a, through a revolution in eight years. Yeah. So you know there's a flexibility to it, a kind of creative element to it, in which it goes through modifications. But the point about considering the inner life is that that doesn't have to. The inner life is a very, very strong, very, very old counterbalance to the drives of the expected self. All of that I could do, if I can get you to be more engaged with your inner life, to be gentle and careful and reflective about yourself, that will give you the core strength to enable you to cope with the expected self because that's an eternal thing. Whereas the expected self, as you've proved, 
goes through lots of changes. Mm. And it's that out of alignment moment that it's really, really useful. When we hit a bump or we go, do I need to get back into alignment or can I learn something from this and take a kinder, more delicate, respectful approach to my inner life? Mm -hmm. That will grow you. That will provide you with a depth that means that you could be independent of circumstances. Something I mentioned earlier as well is, like I kind of feel that I'm really comfortable in my own company now. Fantastic. That, no, that I, was an achievement. I know. But yeah. I, I say that because that's something that we worked on when I first yeah, came we to did, meet yeah. you, like Scott. Because every time at the end of a working day or whenever it came, it's so weird because now I spend so much time on my own. Mm. Um, but I used to literally drive to my friend's house or drive to my family's house. I could never be on my own yeah. because I didn't like to be on my own or have to be alone with my own thoughts. And we worked really hard on that. And yeah. I've got to a point now where I spend so much time on my own. However, this weekend I noticed something. I had a chill weekend. I was craving time on my own and I was looking forward to it. And I thought, right, I'm going to have some time off my phone. And I quickly realized that away from my phone, I felt quite lonely. Mm. So when I'm at my house on my own with my phone... And I've got all this validation from my followers, my WhatsApp groups, everything else. Like I, I feel safe. Whereas when I was actually away from my phone on my own, so it's like a new layer of being on my own now that I'm trying to get used to. Right. Um, but it was interesting the fact that I know I've still got work to do because social media and WhatsApp groups and everything else makes you feel so connected. Yep. How much of a part do you feel social media is playing in the fact that people don't know who they are? Because let's get it right. Every single one of us now, and not every single one of us, that's a bold statement, but it's not just me as an influencer who posts a lot of their life. A lot of people are doing that, right? Mm, yeah. They're living their life, but they're also living a life on social media. Yeah. So surely social media has got to be a massive factor in people losing who they are because is it the polished version of them or is it the genuine version of them? This is a good point, isn't it? Mm. Social media has been a remarkable instrument in developing the whole idea of the expected self. That's what it's about. It says, are you like this? Are you like this? Are you wearing these clothes, these shoes? Are you going to these places? So people, to a degree, manufacture this idea of themselves. And we don't know to the degree to which that manufacturer is powerful. But we do know that people feel impelled to make these communications. And they connect to them. And they are known by them. So it seems to be more important than ever to get to a place where you could go, well, I need to be more than this. I need to be able to take a step away from this and to get to a place where I can be calm and less dependent upon those validations. The tricky thing about that validation system, if I may, right, is that it's very, very wearing. You know, I've got thousands of followers today and today I have fewer people and people are unfollowing me. Why? What's happening? What am I doing wrong? So we have an emotional connection the ways in which we're validated wouldn't it be great and it is good to get to a place where you could retreat from that and say well it's very nice to have this validation it's very nice to be connected and to make money out of this kind of world but it would also be really good to withdraw into myself and say, let's have a couple of hours a day that's an hour a day where nothing matters but my looking after myself so let me just focus more clearly on this one so as you may recall, I'm asking a lot of your memory, mm. the first thing we talk about in therapy, in my work anyway, is the body. Now, four ways, I feel like I'm testing you here, right? <laughs> but there are four ways of being with the body. The first is nurture. The second is mechanical. The third is intimacy. And the fourth is ritual sacrifice. Now, what I mean by that, when we nurture our bodies, we're at home with it. If we've grown up in circumstances in which we have unconditional love and affection, if we have that quality of nurture, 
and something in us makes us feel warm and relaxed and caught. So intimacy becomes relatively easy because we know we're loved. We've had the experience of being cherished. Now, for a lot of men, what I find out, first of all, it's very difficult for them to get in touch with the experience of nurture through the body. But more importantly, what they focus on is the mechanical. Now, the mechanical is the body as a machine. Yes, exactly that. So it's the body as a machine that goes to the gym. Yes. That works relentlessly, that looks at your diet, your drink, and everything else to make sure that you are the version of yourself you focused on. And it's great to have done that, but that's not all. And the point of moving away from the expected self is to say it's great that I'm, I don't know what, hench, buff. I don't know the language. I'm old for the language, right? It's great to have those things, but we can't depend on those things because all sorts of other things can happen to the body in time. And if our sense of ourselves is entirely tied up with the body, frankly, that's a lot of pressure on this expected self. So what I pushed people towards is nurture, is the ability to let's look after you. Let's, for example, if I may, a good one is breathing. So <laughs> a lot of my clients are very successful. And I say, do you meditate? Yeah, I meditate. So tell me, about, tell me about your meditation. Well, meditate 50 minutes a day, I do this. Actually, what they're doing is they're weaponizing their meditation to make them better at the things That's they do. That's what I do it for. Wep right. So what I want to do is move away from weaponizing to nurture. Quiz question. How many breaths a day do we have on average? Oh, I don't know. But even just then when you mentioned breathing, I took a breath. I forgot, to, I forgot I hadn't been breathing. <laughs> we take on average twenty-eight to 29,000 breaths a day. Uh, that's a lot of breaths. So a, a good blunt question with clients is, how many of those breaths are you with? Ooh. That's what I mean. Literally, when you mentioned breath then, I just went, yeah. So the point about nurture is to sit there in meditation and to be with the breaths. Not Olympic breathing, not huge, huge chest-building breathing, just to pull your awareness, to leave mechanical time that we're all run by because it moves at that pace, to leave the mechanical and come into the organic, which is the, your body changing in various ways, all trillions and trillions of cells moving in different directions, doing their work. To be in the organic is to allow yourself to be nurtured, to slow down. And just to be with the breath. That is one of the merits of an inner life, which is separate from the demands of the mechanical. Everything you said makes sense. Nurturing yourself, slowing down. But in this world that we live in, right? And I have this conversation with you all the time. I've said before that I want to be, I don't know, super successful, right? And you always ask me what does success mean to me? Yeah. But a, a, a massive part of that definitely is like um, financial success, business. And we get wrapped up in this hustle culture that's talked about yeah. for years and you're kind of a little bit against that. But in terms of like slowing down, which is we all know is probably best for us like mentally and everything else, but how much does that play a part in you becoming successful if you're being told in this modern world that we live in, work every hour and make sure if you want to be the, the best businessman in the world, you need to make big sacrifices and everything else. So I'm almost like, right, I've done a, a nine hour day here Sometimes a 10 hour day, but it's still not enough. So I might need to, I need to go home and work those extra hours. Yeah. But at the same time, as I know I'm going to run myself into the ground by doing that. So how do we so find this a, is a, this is a, Thank you for saying that. How do we find the balance? Right. So that we, first of all, we decide we're going to have balance, right? First of all, we decide we're going to do that. And we have to, and you're right, I do say it to you every time I say it to everyone, we have to define what success is. Right? If we go on the definition of success, that is being developed elsewhere, there's a sense in which elsewhere is always in charge. 
if they say to be successful, you need to do A, B, C to keep going. You think, okay, well, that's the definition of success I'm going to live by. It's a sense in which you've joined the cult of that success. I must be a subject of that. I must do those things. I must follow those patterns. What I'm saying is the necessity of balance says, well, if I decide on my success, it's up to me when to stop. I'll decide what I want for me. Where do you live? The only place you live is now. Yeah, but Gareth, right? So if you ask me that question, I decide when I want to stop, right? <laughs> Wouldn't everybody say, right, I've done four hours today. I'm going to clock off now. And there's a direct kind of um, contradiction between me wanting just to do four hours in a day, but then me wanting to get to where I want to be in life. Does that make sense? Well, I understand what you're saying, but first of all, it's important to recognize that we're looking at people on an individual basis. Okay. And the four hours a day thing is a bit wackadoodle, but mm. <laughs> I think I know what you're trying to say. But most people are driven by the need to be this expected self, and it means that they sometimes get ungrounded. They're reaching above themselves, and they're not actually settling into themselves. And so on an individual basis, you think, what does it mean to be successful for me? How do I feel? What do I want to look after? Do I want to nurture myself? Is it more important for me to nurture myself than to make a lot of money? And let me go back to that really age-old question. Where do you live? So if a lot of the time where you live is the future, I'll be okay once I've made that million. I'll be okay once I've got that show. I'll be okay once I've set up that business. Then you are sipping hope. And the sipping of this hope the hope is the drink that just pushes you into the future. I think planning for the future is a great idea, but sipping hope is an emotional intoxication that prevents you from being here, and it's being here that is fundamental. This is where we are. This is where we live. So let's be here. Allowing yourself to be here allows yourself to be nurturing and kind and warm and receptive. It doesn't mean cancelling out your ambition. Most of the people I talk to do better after coming to see me they get on. But what I'm urging and will always urge is the importance of saying, where do you live? How are you going to look after yourself now? Listen, I've been seeing you for many years now and I, and I finally got some balance. Yeah. And if I'm honest, when I get balance, like the last couple of months, I've been probably the most balanced I've been for a long time. But now I'm almost having this conversation now where I'm slapping myself in the mirror going, right, Scott, you need to drive on again now. You're, too, you're, too, you're almost too happy. You're too content, Scott. Things are too easy for you. You need to go again. That's a conversation I'm that's, having. That's a really, really interesting thing to say because I say, where does that come from? I don't know. Right, I think, <laughs> let me try, right? Okay. I think that comes from a continuing investment in the expected self and an anxiety about withdrawing into any kind of inner life. You are very much connected to your success. People know you. You're a high-profile figure. You mentioned me the other day, and I gained followers. I feel really sorry for my followers because I haven't posted anything for three years. <laughs> but the point is that you are really, really well-known, and that must be extraordinary for you. I can't imagine what it must be like. I don't like the idea of being recognized. I don't like looking in a mirror while shaving. You know, this is very significantly different people. But it's very, very demanding, and it must be, as I say, intoxicating to be connected to that. So it would take, in your case, more strength to step back and go, actually, I'm, it's okay for me to spend two hours away from this just to be with Juno, just walking around and not being known. That might be a warm, contented space to consider exploring. Oh, do you know what? It's so weird. I went for, because um, I'm always like tussling with my phone. It's a big moment for me to put my phone on the side and take Juno out without my phone. And I'm trying more and more to do that. And I did it the other day, actually. And I went to this park and there was these two old guys sat in the park and they were just talking about history. And I overheard right. the conversation 
And I just went over and sat with them on my own. And I started talking to them about Julius Caesar. We started talking to them about the history of alcohol. And I was sat in this conversation. I was like, I was like, this is me on my own, away from Scott on social media. I'm sat in this part with these two old geezers. And I just felt like me. And I was doing it for me. And it, I didn't think about putting it on social media or showing it off. And that's where the strength comes, doesn't it? That's where the grounding yes, comes. Well, like. that, that's the word. It's grounding. Yeah. That's a really, really good example because essentially, unless you're planning a book on it, that was something that didn't matter. Mm. It really didn't matter. It was just you in conversation, being at ease and away from the expected self. I'm guessing these two guys didn't want a selfie with you or anything else like that. They didn't have a clue. Oh, super. So it was a lovely moment for you just to be grounded. But this question of grounding is really worth returning to again and again. When we are ungrounded, we're, we're casting around looking for a direction to be in, to move in. But when we're grounded within, then we get a sense of, okay, I'll proceed in this fashion. Today quick, tomorrow slow. You will just think yourself through things. But grounding is really, really important. Like you said before, social media it is intoxicating. Literally, because things are going well for me in a minute, in terms of my personal brand, my podcast, and things are on an upward trend, it's almost like my drug, like, all right, this is going up and all oh, this deal's just come through and I've got more followers here or more engagement here and, and it becomes intoxicating. But like you said, with anything, drugs, alcohol, if you have too much of something, it's not good for you. So my question it's to also, you- It also needs the flip side, doesn't it? It also needs the what else, what else? Because you realize, and we've talked about it, that to continue to be committed to this kind of wild, whirring wheel of your expected self is very, very demanding. Yeah. It's about going, how do I buy some contentment? How do I get to a place where it's all right to step away from things? Like that moment in the park, which sounds precious to me. So I've officially started my sprint triathlon training, and I'm not gonna lie, I'm loving every moment. I'm out in open water, doing swimming lessons, and I'm trying so many different things that I wouldn't usually do, like being out on my bike now, perfecting my running technique. But I think with the swimming, that's the one that I wanna focus on today because that's where I need the most work. And what I've realized is all about your breath work, making sure you're getting that breath on that third stroke and not panicking, taking your time. It's not a sprint, believe it or not. It's about taking your time and getting those key disciplines right. But make sure you're asking for help from someone who's been there, done it, or get yourself some swimming lessons. It's all about putting the work in so on the day, it becomes as easy as possible. And if you need some guidance on your training, check out the training app, Training Peaks. It's got everything you need on there. But please keep going and enjoy every moment because you should be proud of yourself. You're trying something new. I will see you on the 29th of July. I also think the fact that I've, I've, I've quit alcohol again now, that really does ground me as well because there's no yeah. escape. There's no escaping you, your own thoughts, your own emotions. You yeah. have to deal with everything that comes your way. Whereas my old kind of coping mechanism yeah. was to go and drink. If something went well, I'd go and drink. If something went bad or I had a stressful week. It's pattern behavior. But you never advised me to go sober. You never once. I thought that you would just, after every weekend, I would come in and sit down with you guys and I'd be on my last legs. And I'd be so looking forward to seeing you on that Monday morning because I wanted to like let you know what I'd done at the weekend or the shit I've got myself into and I wanted to unload. And sometimes I kind of want you to go, Scott, I think you should stop drinking. And you never once advised that. I did that off my own back because that was right for me. But for someone who is like struggling with alcohol or any kind of substance abuse, 
you don't tend to recommend going completely um, sober, do you, or anything like that? No. Why is that? What is your, okay. your take on it? If you say to someone who drinks a great deal, so you don't stop drinking now, first of all, there'll be a jolt to the system and they might follow it through, but for the most part, it will make drinking considerably more attractive. Why is that? Right? Because things that are taboo become appealing. But why is that in human nature? Well, that, that's a hugely difficult <laughs> question to get into. But, but I know from experience of talking to hundreds of yeah, men of about drink and drugs, they could be very careful with it. And to be violent, to say, no, you must stop doing it. Well, you're shocked to the system that very few of them will follow through with. What I'm much, much more interested in is people. How did it get to a place? Alcohol's not so interesting to me as what happened to you to make alcohol the solution? Well, what happened to you? What's your story? What led to that particular choice? Why did you do that? And then we explore that and they go, okay, well, it's a coping mechanism. I've been doing this because of things that happened to me as a kid. I can't cope with certain emotional situations. I go out of control. But I think about my mother, my father, those difficulties. Go, okay, now we've explored. We've done the understanding phase of what happened to you. It's a really productive and very emotionally engaging stage of therapy. Now, shall we talk about change? And I don't then say, well, now you've got to stop drinking entirely. Now we have an ambition that says, how would you like to drink? You'd like a glass of wine with your steak? Yes, I would like that. Well, should we think about that as a drink? And I tell you, a lot of heavy drinkers will say, I just love to be a guy who goes to the pub, has two or three pints, and then goes home. Should we look at that? Should we consider that? So we have an ambition which is kinder and warmer and more receptive to human beings than one that's immediate and aggressive. So would you say with me then, it's because I've lost that kind of sense of my true self. That's why I was drinking. So I think a lot of the work that you were doing with me was trying to get me back to figuring out who I was and through doing that, I would then have the strength to get a healthy relationship with alcohol. Yeah. Because uh, I feel like looking back now, that's what actually happened. You were saying, Scott, instead of focusing on quitting alcohol, focus on finding yourself, yeah. and becoming comfortable with who you are. So uh, that, the, and the focus of that work, as I say, is away from the expected self towards the inner life, because it's only from an inner life that you could look at the expected self. It's, oh, I'm acting like this. I'm behaving like this. I think I know why. Mm. So some very core emotional issues with men. Men don't tend to want to engage with emotions. The stereotype is, you know, get home from work, man and wife. And she says, I had a terrible day in the office because, you know, she was rude and he was difficult. And the husband listens to that and he goes, well, what you need to do is ABC. Well, she knows what to do. What she wants is for him to engage on an emotional plane. Now, men are not keen to engage on an emotional plane because they don't spend a lot of time there. <laughs> and if they don't spend a lot of time there, they're reluctant to dip their toes into the waters in which they may sink. So they will stay into a cold response. Mm -hmm. So what I'm urging when we talk about the inner life is to consider how did you develop your emotional relationship to yourself? What happened to you growing up? Has it been difficult for you to consider the emotional elements of your past? And if it has, let's work it through because that strengthens your inner life and enables you to have a distance on the expected self. Mm -hmm. Instead of relentlessly following, you could hold back a bit and go, I, I don't think today I want to do that. I don't think today I want to continue pursuing that. I want to look after me. I want to do nurture. Mm, no, it makes sense. And I think the old school mentality um, around manhood and not talking about your emotions was really evident with my dad. I remember this one time when dad came down the stairs and he was just really struggling. You see the pain in his eyes. I yeah. was like, dad, what do you want to do? Like I said, do you want to go to Barbados? Do you want to go to Antigua? I know he loves it over there. I'll fly you out there tomorrow. And it was no, son, I'm okay. I said, well, what is it, dad? You like... I said, Dad, please just tell me what's going on. And he was—he wanted to say it so badly, but he couldn't. 
he was about to say it, but he couldn't say it. But I am seeing it change now in this generation. Like, for example, I hope me, so, and, yeah. me and the boys now, like, we rib each other all day long in the WhatsApp group, um, the paddle group. And then next thing you'll yeah. get a message of one of the boys saying, love you, mate. And it's almost like, the amount of my friends now who are saying, love you. Like, that's really, that's a lovely thing. Like, we say it to each other now, like yeah. grown men, and we say it in, in our own way. And don't be wrong, it's not in the, in, in the WhatsApp groups, but it's behind closed doors. So I'm starting to see things change, and I think there's something really important now, and it's, it's good to see things changing. I think you're absolutely right, because in terms of being a good father, um, in terms of being a responsible parent, you have to be in touch with your emotions. Otherwise, the kid looks to you for just solutions and ends up thinking about father as being a technical person rather than someone he can share with. Boy, you know, if, if fathers are prepared to share with their sons, then it's going to be a more useful model going forward, mm. a kinder one, a warmer one. I've got a question for you guys. There's something I've been thinking about recently. I was walking around my estate the other day and I started to feel a little bit stressed and a little bit maybe lonely or a little bit unsettled. I've been having a really good month, right? And yep. then this feeling started creeping. I think everything's going well for me right now. I'm financially secure. My business is going well. I've got a beautiful dog. I found paddle that I love doing. Mm. Why is this starting to happen? I'm starting to think I'm looking for more again. I'm looking for more like why in today's society, especially, are we always reaching for more? Like what is it within us that makes us want more and more? It's just a great question, isn't it? So what I'm going to say, first of all, is that this is the drive created by others, the expected self. And the others in these cases can be standards, show business, uh, the standards, you have to reach this, you have to be this type of person. And there's a relentlessness about consumer culture that says you have to go to these places, buy these shoes, wear these dresses, you know, be around the most glamorous things possible. So we strive towards doing that. And it actually keys into, and this is really interesting subject, keys into some very, very powerful chemicals within us. We respond to those chemicals. We feel we have to do those things to belong to the tribe. If we're all reaching together, then it validates the tribe's continued move forward. But great changes in our culture don't come from groups of people following. Great changes in our culture come from individuals standing apart from it, going, let's think about what it is we want to do. What are my criteria? Are my criteria kindness, warmth, compassion, and sharing? Let's do that then, shall we? Let's find a way of doing that alongside and get a distance on the push towards being this expected self. But the forces of consumer culture are very considerable and around us more now than ever before. Yeah. It's mad though because there's certain friends that I spend time with where I love them to bits, but because they're so wrapped up in like this, this different world, for example, one of my mates wants to move to Dubai now. And he's like, there's so much opportunity over there and this and that. And I've got no interest in moving to Dubai. But by the time I've spent time with him, I'm thinking about moving to Dubai and I feel like I'm not doing enough over here. So, and then I've been, I've got another friend who's pretty much a billionaire. And when I spend time with him, he wants to do nice things with everything else. But yep. I end up sometimes feeling low after spending time with him, not, not because of him, but because of, I feel like I'm not enough in that environment. And I think about my life and I think, do you know what, guy? I feel like, if I only had what I've got now for the rest of my life, I'm, I'm kind of content. I'm not saying for the rest of my life because you never know. You all, I think there's part of progression is yeah. happiness for me, right? Don't get me wrong. But I want to do everything that I do from a place of passion, from a place of enjoyment. Like It's almost like I've got my baseline now and anything I do from here, I want it to kind of be a bonus and enjoy yeah. it and not drive from a place of feeling like I've got to keep up with that guy or I've got to have that house in order to be validated by yeah. the people around me. 
So it, it kind of makes sense to me. What happens when you're around high achievers, people with a great, great deal of money, is that you get infected by them. Yeah. They're doing this in that direction. That, and there's a part of you that says, I've got to continue to do that. So it's about pulling back and saying, well, actually, I don't really, do I really want to do that? Am I enough yet? So let, let me just, if I may, go into a, a, an important concept we talk about, which is an emotional template. An emotional template is something at the, at the core of your being. It's right underneath all your belief structures about yourself. And if you understand what your emotional template is, you can see it in front of you and go, actually, this is quite overwhelming. I need to deal with this template to step it down. So I talk to men a lot, and one of the core lines that's in the book that comes up is the emotional template for them is, have I done enough yet? Mm. Have I done enough yet? This is a very, very powerful line because, first of all, the have I done enough speaks to work and effort, and the yet Who's that directed at? And often that yet is directed to a parental figure, often a father figure. And if you live with that very, very core emotional template, have I done enough yet? It will drive your wheel forward. You'll continue to do things. And then you'll be confused about why do I still feel empty when I'm doing all of this effort and making so much money? That's because you haven't sat with, been with, explored the inner life through that question, have I done enough yet? Because you have. You live here now. And if you get to that place, you wake up every day and go, this is where I am. This is where I live. This is what I'm doing. This is now. That will bring you calm. That will bring you warmth and compassion and ease. But if you're always thinking, have I done enough yet? It's going to push you on in a kind of frenzied way in which you'll continue to be affected by other people who are driving their wheels forward and yet have no, don't have the ability to stop the wheel just relentlessly push on through. But it's funny you say that because I live every day like that in terms of if I'm going to kind of switch off in the evening and have a bath because I do like a nice hot bath these days, I'm almost like I can't do that until I've done enough. Have I done enough? I've, I've made the most of every minute of every day. And it's it's tiring. because yeah, It is. Because yeah. also, I, you've said this before, I've come into you before, I've been stressed out and because yeah. I've got three businesses and I'm driving myself all the time. And you went, well, who's driving you? I said, I said, me. It's actually me who's driving me. So you, I remember saying to you this moment, I said, yeah. to you, if you could speak to those three bosses, yeah. what would you say to them? I and we can't repeat on telly. Yeah, yeah. I told, <laughs> I, I, I told them I'd quit yeah. or do yeah. one. Well, you were, you were very aggressive about yeah, how you would speak to them, actually. It was a bit more forceful than that. Yeah. But, that, but that's the point. So what's at the core of you, what's at the core of many men, is this template, this unanswered question. Have I done enough yet? And if you want the question to be answered elsewhere, this is difficult, isn't it? Because there is no, no one else who can answer that. No one else can answer that because the question is formed in childhood. That's why it's a powerful emotional template. Have I done enough yet, Dad? Have I done enough yet, Mum? So it's about going, okay, well, where did this come from? How can I be with that child? And that's a really core cool part of what we do, is find a way into that child, look after him, and pull his energy in because his energy is running around trying to prove things, trying to make things happen. And it's about going, how can I be with that boy energy and look after it rather than it taking me into different directions for different places? Mm. That boy energy, boy energy is hugely appealing. Everyone loves to see boy energy running around the pub, you know, climbing the mountain, making all these great successes. But boy energy on its own becomes a little sad as we get older. And we have to understand what that boy energy is doing and integrate it into the man so the man goes forward, not the man with the boy running around 
that's a reckless, difficult wow, element. That is so interesting you just said that because I feel like Scotty Special was a boy. Yeah. And being Scotty Special in my early 20s was pretty cool and fun and everything else. But when I got a little bit older, people were like, this isn't really attractive anymore. It's people were feeling sorry for me. It's boy energy. Yeah. And it's like, a, and I always say that I was a late maturer and I still am. I feel like a boy now. I generally do. And it could it, be very, this is subtle, isn't it? Because there are lots of very many appealing things about boy energy. But the boy energy has to be integrated. Otherwise, it's a reckless force that takes off on its own. And that's been part of your prob problem. It's more of a journey to go, right, my expected self is one in which I have to integrate that boy energy and be with it rather than be run by it. Mm -hmm. And I think you might find at the end of your day, some of the difficulties come because the boy is still running around to do things. And the man needs to come forward from a slow, heavy, compassionate space and say, okay, let's stop now. Let's do contentment. Let's just slow down. It's like looking after the boy. <laughs> it's so funny because when you walked down the stairs before, I was playing the Lion King music. Yeah. And I, was, I was comparing you. How weird is this? I was comparing you to Mufasa and I was like Simba looking up at his dad. Do you know what I mean? Because you've got that, that man's energy where it comes from kind of being grounded and, and wisdom and experience. And I'm sure you've got your own issues. And your we've own all way. got stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've all got stuff. But at the same time, it, it, that's how... I felt I was automatically positioning you as like a father figure. And it's almost kind of maybe that's what I needed. We talk about that a lot in, in our therapy sessions yeah. that you always kind of think that I am the way I am. A lot of the time, for example, wanting to people please or looking for validation because I didn't see my dad for six years. And yeah. I was always looking for love. And so that else. line must have a resonance for you. Have I done enough yet? Because dad couldn't answer that. Uh, so the force of that question was running around inside you mm. and the father wasn't there to answer it. Because your father was, didn't, like many of his generation, have a very emotional understanding of himself or contribution to that, he couldn't answer it. So it remains unanswered. Mm. Only you can answer it. Mm. Only you can be with that and look after the boy who was impelled by it. Yeah. If someone is struggling though, Gareth, and they feel like they've got poor mental health, what would be your biggest piece of advice? I would go back to the core business that we look at, body, others, thinking, emotion. How are you looking after your body? What are you doing for your body? Are you engaging in habits that hurt it? Are you punishing your body? Where is nurture in it? Let's explore that. What is your connection to others? Are you making meaningful, genuine, organic connections to others? How are you working on that? And then thoughts and emotions. What's your relationship to your thoughts? Are you being bullied by your thoughts? Are they pushing you into things that you don't like? And how are you with your emotions? Are you receptive to your emotions? Or do you keep reacting? I talked to someone the other day about this, and I said, how are you feeling? She's always feeling jealous. Did you accept the feeling of jealousy? Oh, no, I don't like it. Well, <laughs> if you don't like a feeling, that doesn't make any difference. It's still going to be there. That emotion is still there, whether you like it or not. It's important to be attentive to that. Talk to me about that. that, though, Gareth, about accepting jealousy, right? So say, for, for example, I know I can be a jealous guy which I don't really like sometimes. I think that's part of the reason why I don't like to get in a relationship because I know I can be jealous. And okay, so I've accepted I'm jealous. How does that make things better? Okay, we, we, need, to, we, need, we need to go back a bit I'm, to go through this famous Buddhist formulation of RAIN, recognition, acceptance, investigation, and non-attachment. The point is that recognizing you're jealous, that's great. A lot of men, when they recognize they're jealous, don't accept the second stage. So what they do is react to that jealousy. They'll make a phone call. They'll check her text. They'll go through that. They'll be aggressive. They, yeah, exactly that. They won't <laughs> accept it. So if you can tell me that you've accepted that jealousy, fantastic. And then we get to that third stage. And the third stage in this formulation is what other feelings are coming up? 
And when you're feeling jealous, feelings like anger and rage will be cousins that arrive at the same point. What other thoughts are you having? What is she doing? Why is she doing that? Why is she ignoring me? And then thirdly, with the order, it's up to you, really, the body. When I feel jealous, what's going on with my body? Now, when we look at those three things, we do it mindfully. If we don't do it mindfully, we'll just make things worse and amplify and magnify them. So we look at, we sit there, we be mindful, we go through, we write it down, we carefully analyze what's going on to me when I'm being jealous. And then finally, we get to non-attachment and the recognition, it's in the book, this kind of work, that whatever emotion you're feeling, however dreadful it is, it's going to go. There's the hotel exercise we do on this and the recognition that we could be completely occupied with something like jealousy. But frankly, it's going to go because every emotional context, every so, emotional feeling you've ever had, it's going to go. Tell the hotel exercise, please. If I do the hotel exercise, I'm just going to ruin what I just said now because I've given the end of it. But I'll just briefly do the hotel okay. exercise. So imagine you're in a hotel. Yeah. Big hotel, shiny desk, huge, gorgeous place. Everything is calm. Nothing to think about, nothing to worry about. But two floors above you is a guy who runs a hotel. It's his hotel. He's been running a hotel 50 years. He knows stuff. He's really good. So everything's calm. You can't see him, but he can see you. So one day you're sitting there, everything's calm, and then suddenly anger walks into the hotel. Big black suit, red trim. Why are you being so slow? Why haven't you cleaned my shoes? Where's my burger? Why is the quality of my burger not good enough? Why doesn't my room overlook the Taj Mahal? Why are you being so slow? Is this your first day of the job? Where's your supervisor? So you go to anger. I'm sorry, anger. Let me cope with it. So I'll try to help you. I will do what I can. And while you're trying to cope with that, jealousy comes in now. Big green suit. Slams down his back. He says, I've been here literally hours, hours waiting for you to deal with me. Where's my frittata? Why haven't you brushed my hair? Why doesn't my room overlook the Sydney Opera House? Why are you being so slow? Why are you so stupid? So you say, say to Anger, sorry, I've got to deal with jealousy. So you go off to deal with jealousy. Talking to jealousy like this. Meanwhile, Anger ain't getting any happier. So the atmosphere is really difficult, really stressful. So what does he know that you don't? What he knows is that the guests are going to leave. They are going to leave. They all leave. So you could be with Anger and you could try and make things worse with Anger. You could, as one of my clients once said, I'd leave over the counter and smack him. So that's not really going to work. Right? But you have to be with it in that moment. But if you could be with it in that moment and go, actually, it's going to leave. Jealousy, it's going to leave. A nice guy comes in. He makes a joke about the other two people. And you want to be with him, but he too is going to leave. And that's the principle of non-attachment, is recognizing whatever emotion overtakes you, it's going to go. It will go. So you look after yourself. That's the inner life. You look after yourself as your expected self deals with the emotions that drive it on. So it all comes back down to like acceptance. But yes. let me give you an example. What if you're in a situation where you know someone is out of line, right? And they're pushing your buttons and they will continue to push your buttons unless you react in, in a certain way. And I've got, believe it or not, not many people say this, I've got a temper, right? And it rarely comes out. But I don't like bullies and I don't like people who feel like they can be kind of alpha males and yeah. basically, basically use... I don't know, their physicality or yeah. their position to kind of bully others, right? Me too, so, yeah. So there's times when I might snap in that yeah. situation and then I end up feeling pretty crap, even though I know I was in the right because it's brought out a side into me. Whereas I could easily have walked away and gone, you know what, I'm not going to say anything and I'm just going to be composed, protect me, and everything else. But that person then might come back again and do that to me again and they might do it to someone else, which is even worse. So how 
do you find that balance between accepting a certain situation and accepting how it makes you feel, but then also doing what you think might be right to stop that from happening again? Okay, your ability to stop that thing from happening again is very, very limited. But when the difficulty arises, there's a very deep and profound concept here, which is called appropriateness. So when this person is behaving in the way they do, or over the top, machismo behavior, et cetera, you go, what is appropriate in me now to do? What can I do that is not going to be over the top, but it allows me to express myself? And you have to say to him, listen, mate, I don't think you should be doing that. Right now, it's not the right thing. It's hurting other people. And then you leave it. And you leave the moment of it. And you don't think this act will determine his behavior in the future. And you don't hold back and ignore it either because you're feeling something. And if you're feeling an emotion, we've got to be with that emotion. But we don't tell a story about the emotion. We are with it when it happens. Just do what's appropriate. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the biggest thing that I wanted to get out of this conversation today, Gareth, and I could sit and talk to you for hours, but I want to give people an insight into the kind of conversations that we have. And I think the biggest takeaway that I've got from this conversation is just the importance of self-awareness. Yeah. Which so many people don't have. Self-care. Yeah. Self-care, I think, is really, really important. And the ways in which men traditionally define care is the gym. Well, the gym, the mechanical body is an important part of us, of course, but it can't be the determining part because your body is going to change as you get older. These are the facts, organic facts. Self-care means let's look at nurture. How do I do, how do I deal with, how do I cope with intimacy? How do I help other people? Am I reaching out to other people or am I rather self-obsessed? So it's about deciding how you're going to do self-care and make this a conscious, active project. Mm. Listen, Gareth, I think you're amazing. Um, you, you played a massive part in my life. And I, I want anybody who's listening to this, if they do feel like they're stuck in a rut, then to make sure they hit you up. Um, where would they find you? Is it Men Should Talk on Instagram? Men Should Talk on Instagram and, uh, of course, well, you know, we're on Deansgate. It's on Deansgate. And you've got a new book that's just come out as got well. a new book called The Expected Self. And and that's pretty, pretty much we've summed up that today, right? Yeah, well, I've talked about that. It's an important part of the work. But the book is a manual. The book is very much like the so therapy it's the process. It's got the tools in it. It's got diagrams. It took forever. But the, all those things are within it. I've also got someone working with me now at Men Should Talk, Michelle. Wow, okay. So Michelle works at Men Should Talk as well. So other people, if they don't want to talk to me, they can talk to her. Okay, I mean, and you see men and women though, right? Yes, we do. Okay. Because I've always been a, it's not gender-specific therapy. It's a therapy that works for everyone. Yeah. And, and just, with hundreds of men and women, and, we've and, seen and I know I've sent a lot of people to you, a lot of my you friends have. and family, and, and you have changed so many lives. And I, I'm really proud to be breaking down the stigma with you around seeking therapy. I feel like everybody should have a therapist in, yeah. in some way, shape, or form. Um, there's so much power to be had in talking yeah just literally talking and but you, well, it's you're absolutely right so it's also for the first time yesterday who defined himself as an introvert right a really 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 quiet guy but at the end of the session he said i feel lighter that's the point we put ourselves down good therapy is not an opportunity to go in there and make a problem of yourself good therapy is to go there and go actually i feel lighter as a result of this conversation i've let things go and that's the open door. Then we start to work through body, others thinking and emotion to develop a tenderer, kinder, softer way with you. Mm. Because you put yourself down as a problem and engage with yourself as a person. 
that's incredible. And it's definitely how I feel. Every time after um, I've spoken to you, I just feel lighter. And I'm going to walk away from this podcast today feeling exactly the same. That's great. Um, but Gareth, you're a legend. Thank you so much. I look forward to our next session. Yeah, I'll have to book you in. Because yeah, you missed Monday. I missed yeah, Monday. Yeah. But yeah, Gareth, you're a legend. Thank you so much no, thank you, for Scott. being on. We appreciate that. Legend. Thanks very much. Wow. You know you've had a good podcast episode when the people in the studio are pretty much brought to tears because Gareth makes you think about everything and he makes you become very self-aware and that's what he's done for me over these years he's enabled me to break away from who I thought I needed to be and really think about who I actually am as a person and this podcast has got so much in it and Gareth if you're listening I just want to say thank you not only for this conversation today but just for everything you've done for me and if you are struggling and you feel like you've got issues with your mental health or whatever it is it's okay to talk, go and get some help, go and get some guidance and start moving yourself in the right direction. Massive thank you to everybody who's continuing to support this podcast from day one with Gareth to now, we've moved on so much and I'm forever grateful. So please continue to follow, subscribe. It makes a massive difference, even on YouTube as well. And I will be back next week with another incredible guest on Learning As I Go. This podcast was produced by Purposeful Podcasts.